It's awesome to be here. It is. Many of you who know me know that I love God's Word. I came to Christ as a child and dedicated my life to Christ as a teenager and have had the privilege of teaching God's Word for the past 20-ish years. I felt called to do this in my life so that last September, I had the chance to phase out of my practice in the pediatric ER and to do this on a sort of more full-time basis. I do telemedicine now, which is a great segue, by the way. The web, clearly, that question that, by the way, my favorite game in the world. That's why I escaped during the, the whole, you know, name that tune thing. You all know how much I love that. I was like, I got to go to the bathroom this minute. And so I ran out during that little uh, social thing that you all did. I'm not that social, but I really believe that uh, uh, you don't have to be social to teach God's word. And so back in September of the year, I uh, told the Lord, okay, I'll do this. I'll step out in faith and I'll do, uh, I'll, I'll see what you'll do. And God has been so faithful. Just last night, I flew back from Toronto where I was in a women's conference, had an awesome time. My assistant, Irina, is here, part of, hopefully going to be part of this church, going to the members meeting today, and so just excited about her and the gifts that God is going to use her in. Uh, a week ago, I was in Lebanon. Every three months, God has given me the privilege to uh, go back to the Middle East. My home country is Lebanon. Never in my life thought that I'd be going back there and doing work there, but again, as God would often have in our lives, things pop out of the blue, and you're like, where did this come from? And God's like, no, this is not an accident. I have a plan in this, and, and I started going back to do medical clinics for Syrian refugees. So a week ago, we did 900 patients, came through our clinic. We've started programs to feed the refugees uh, through the local church. We work with the local church on the ground, and it's just been exciting. I can't believe what a week it's been. And now, of course, the privilege of being here and sharing God's word with you. If you have the Bible, turn it to Esther chapter uh, 4. I'm going to pick up in the story in a minute, but remember it is Memorial Day. Many of you might have been out of town or maybe you're here visiting Chicago for the first time. Thank you for coming. If you have, this is typically a weekend where a lot of people go out of town. And uh, by the way, I don't have a flag outfit, but it took me about halfway through the service to notice that. I don't know what you're going to do July 4th, but, but we're looking forward to it. But, but I was actually planning to go up north to my family's. My mom lives up in Green Bay. Many in Chicago hate that place, but that's where I'm from. And uh, anyway, I'm going to go after the service because if you have a chance to share God's word and you're called to do this, nothing will stand in the way to do that. So again, I'm so, so excited to be here to do this. What Carl has been leading up to is so interesting and critical. Um, you might have come to church. Maybe it is your first time. And it's easy to sort of walk in and wonder, like, what's happening here? And even the offering bit where he says, what are our two rules? Those, is, those aren't like some rules that we got together and came up with. Church isn't like a social club where people get together and say, man, how are we going to do this? What's the flavor here? The reason we open God's word and the reason that we focus on what God has said, we believe that God spoke and he wrote this. He didn't write it. He used humans to write it, but he breathed his word through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and gave us this book so that all the things that we're doing are in accordance with this book. So there is actually a scriptural reference where we're told, don't give, but give cheerfully if you're going to give. And that if you want, when Carl prayed the blessing, over those who gave. That is biblical from the Gospel of Luke. And so I, I urge you that if you're visiting to hold us accountable to these things because we really want to live our lives in submission to the Word of God. And so uh, today is, is, of course, the weekend of Memorial Day, and we're really focused on sacrifice. I called the message today the opportunity of a lifetime. And I gave you some of the highlights of my life just even in the last couple of minutes because I believe with all my heart that every opportunity I've been given has been sort of this opportunity of a lifetime. And there are times in life when you approach them that you don't think they're opportunities. 
You might be right now at a crossroad in your life and you're sort of going like, Man, I don't know if this is a blessing or a curse, but I'm telling you that if you do certain things and if you're aware of certain things and if you tune your heart to how God has planned your life, that everything that you're facing right now is an opportunity that God has given you. And the key is to decide, am I going to serve myself or am I going to serve him? Even if you're here and you've never given your life to Christ, I believe that you being here is an opportunity of a lifetime for you today. God is inviting you not to a local church, not to a group of people that love one another, though that is what a local church is, but he's invited us here in order to have relationship with him. And not just relationship, but a deeper walk with him day by day by day. So if you're here and you're like, man, I've been a Christian for a while, but I'm stagnant in my life. You need to figure out why. And I don't think it's that complicated. You could take one of us aside after the service. We can get deeper into this. Like Carl was talking about talking to you and asking those difficult questions. Or you can even just listen in now as the Holy Spirit of God uses his word to impress his truth on you. That's what we're doing here today. And so in Esther, there's a beautiful story of a woman, and I thought it was a bit stereotypical to teach on her, but I taught the last time on, on the Exodus, and so I think this is fair to now say, oh, I'll teach on a woman. But I felt like this was such a great story of sacrifice, and the Lord just led me to this passage, and I hope that you're going to find some truths that will change your life today. And so I want to give you a bit of the summary of the story. I thought that was funny before I started. I tell you a little illustration because I Googled, I'm a big Google fan. By the way, your list excluded some common ways that we find news. Twitter is a good way. I just use Google a lot, but, but still a decent list. And shame on you, Carl. I know next time we'll fix that list. But, but uh, again, I hate the game, so I can be a critic of it because I don't play it. I don't think I've ever played that game since the beginning of this church. And uh, this might be the last time that Carl asks me to teach this. <laughs> but, but listen, listen. <laughs> I... Uh, uh, where was I going with this, Carl? <laughs> stay out of that that's right. That's right. We're going to stay out of the corner. So I went on the Google, and I put in sacrifice, and I came up with an illustration that I think those of you who come to this church will love and appreciate. Back in 1926, six-year-old boy, I wrote his name here, Richard, what's his name? Stanley, got a case of diphtheria. It's an illness. That was, is very serious, and at the time, they did not have immunizations, and so the poor kid ended up dying. It's a tragedy, not the good part of the illustration. Well, the good part of the illustration is that in that town of, get this, Nome, Alaska, because you can't teach the Bible at 180 Chicago without telling a story about Nome, Alaska. But this isn't just a story about Nome, Alaska. This gets even better. I believe this is divinely ordained no, and inspired by the Holy Spirit. No, maybe not inspired by the Holy Spirit. But listen, this doctor in this town sees this boy die, gets this anti-diphtheria serum and starts creating it to immunize the people in this town. The problem is he runs out of serum. So they get their brains together in the town and they think about it and they find out that a thousand miles away in a frozen wilderness, there was... Uh, a big bulk of the serum that they could get access to. The only problem was how to get there. You guys know where this is going. Amazingly, the story says, a group of trappers and pros prospectors, whatever those are, I call them Carls, volunteered to cover the distance with their dog teams. <laughs> Can you believe this? This is on the Google. And so they basically went from Nome, Alaska to Nanana, is the name of the town where the serum was, went through 144 hours of minus 50 degree winds with their dogs and 
battled fatigue and frostbite and exhaustion. Of course, we've all heard about 80 versions of the story in the form of Carl. <laughs> I just like to tease him. But, but all this to say, it was there back to Nome, and the only person who died in that illness was that little boy. But because of their sacrifice, all of the people in the town survived. That's pretty awesome. Now, I don't know if that was the birth of the race because I looked it up and I think they started doing the... I, that was the birth of the race. There's something in the Google that says it started in 1906, but I thought for sure Carl would know and Trump Google, so we can amend that later in the afternoon. Sacrifice is inspiring. Sacrifice is more than inspiring. Everybody in this room has had a dream, maybe a daydream at some point in your life where you thought, man, I want to be in a place where there's some big thing happening and I want to just make a difference in that thing. You might have dreamed like I did growing up. I wanted to be on a plane and someone would be sick and I'd get up and do the work that needed to be done to save them. I did come close to that once. I gave a woman some orange juice and she survived her hypoglycemic attack on the plane and I ended up with a free, free plane ticket later, which I was told you shouldn't accept because that is like receiving payment for saving a life, but I didn't know any better. I was a resident. But we all dream of those moments of greatness. And I believe God has put that in our hearts and our lives. If only we would recognize them, because most of the time we don't see him coming. And so in Esther, we see a woman who is given an opportunity of a lifetime, and we see certain things about this story. And in Esther chapter 4, I'm going to pick up the reading in a minute in verse 8-ish. But before I do, let me give you a little story of Esther, background, in case this is your first time hearing anything about the Bible. There was a time in, in, in the Old Testament where uh, the people of Israel had been taken captive and they were living in foreign lands and it was a difficult time for them. Well, in that time, there was a king called Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus, and you can go home and read the first three chapters to get a flavor of it, but just to kind of bring you up to speed. Ahasuerus was a little bit on the cuckoo side. So he had, he would party and have a good time. And one time they brought in, uh, the guys were at this party and it was like days would go on, they'd have a party and they brought in the ladies and one of the ladies was his wife, not Esther at the time. And, 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 and she, her name was Queen Vashti and she was asked to, uh, to do things that she wasn't comfortable to do. And so as a result, because she refused the king's command, the advisors in that time got together and said, dude, you can't take this sort of behavior from your wife. All of the women in the kingdom are going to pick up on this. And so he said, all right, I'll banish her. They decided that they would get rid of Queen Vashti. The only problem is that the king missed her after some time. And so I don't know if he missed her, but he missed having the woman by his side who was beautiful and worthy to be looked upon. And so he gathers the advisors again and they come up with this crazy plan and they're like, we'll do sort of a bachelorette sort of thing. Y'all who watch TV are familiar with that. And they literally do. They basically say, hey, if you're a virgin and you're beautiful and you live in the city, the king is going to get to choose his favorite of all of the ladies. And in that town, and again, here's the interesting God part, there is a man named Mordecai. If you've been in church for any time, you might be familiar with that name. Mordecai is a pretty awesome guy, and he is Jewish. And Mordecai was one of those guys who, by the way, himself was given an opportunity of a lifetime that I'm not sure he knew was an opportunity at the lifetime at that time. But he was in a family where there was a little girl named Esther. Her actual Jewish name was Hadassah, and Esther's parents died. And she was a first cousin relation of Mordecai, and as many people in the Middle East do, it was just understood, and by the way, many people here as well, it was understood that Mordecai would take care of Esther, so he sort of adopted her. So now here's this man who has no wife, he's, he's a eunuch, and in, in principle is thought that he was a eunuch, which means someone who is uh, single and living the Christian lifestyle. 
while if you are obedient to scripture. No, <laughs> that is not what a eunuch is, but it certainly feels like it at times. And uh, anyway, he was, you can look up on the Google when you go home what a eunuch is. But basically, Mordecai takes in this woman and he becomes her adoptive father. And the days go on, and of course she grows up and turns into, and you see where this is going, a beautiful young woman. And now, so King Ahasuerus comes on and has this bachelorette race, and you've got King, a man named Mordecai who's got this beautiful niece, and she, it wasn't a choice, you couldn't decide I'm going to be in it or not, it was forced, and so he sends off Esther to be in that lineup, and sure enough, of all the towns and all the cities, you know, of course you see where this is going, Esther is chosen to be the next wife of the king. And Mordecai gives her a piece of advice. He says, Esther, just do me one favor. Do not tell him, the king, do not tell anybody there that you are of Jewish descent. Just keep that a secret because there was some deep, deep racism going on in that, in that time. Now, again, you, many of you are sitting here and you hear the story that happened thousands of years ago, but there's automatically sort of the sense, man, this is a morally corrupt place. This is a, a crazy king. And this is just, this is people like it's just, a, there's some racism issues. This sounds a lot of familiar compared to what we're living now. And so it's easy to put yourself in this, put yourself in the story because the story gets a bit more complicated. And so one day, uh, there's a, now another personality that comes in the story. His name is Haman. And so one day, Haman, he's a leader in the Persian world. And so he comes up and he uh, comes up with a rule. This Haman guy is full of himself and he uh, has one little secret that, that is soon not to become very little. He hates Jewish people. But, but one of the reasons that he hates them a lot in that time is that he decides that he wants people to worship him. Because boy, people in power sometimes like that. And so he puts out this rule and he tells King Ahasuerus, you know, let everybody bow to, to, to me. And, and of course, Mordecai says, I can't bow to him because I only bow to the Lord God. Mordecai was a Christian. He was a man who worshipped the one true God. And so Haman developed this deep hatred against Mordecai. Basic story. Almost a TV, Netflix. I just gave you something like a Netflix binge. You know, you can binge on this. I just gave you sort of a summary. Many of you are like, man, I'd watch this if it was on TV because it is pretty complicated. Haman was so crazy, though. He made it his point not just to kill Mordecai because he hated him so much because Mordecai wouldn't bow to Haman, but he decides, furthermore, he would go to the king and say, hey, king, why don't we kill all of the Jewish people? In fact, if you do that, I'm going to even put money in the thing and I'm going to pay money in order to get all of the Jewish people killed, which sounds crazy to my ears and yet so often in world history we see this sort of hatred take root and explode and, and often because of one person just having their prideful feelings hurt. Now this is, this is you, you might be reading the story and hearing the story and going, man, this is crazy but we're going somewhere. So we get to Esther uh, chapter 4. Now mind you, Esther's married to the king. She has great favor with the king. But there's rules and regulations of how the woman would approach the man and how their relationship would be. And now she's not told the king that she's Jewish. Now Mordecai finds out this horrible news that his people are going to be annihilated. In the story of the Bible, this is critical because back in Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned and they were given a beautiful, perfect world, Adam and Eve had been given a choice and they chose self versus God. They ate the fruit rather than trusting the Lord, and way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God had, of course, come and, and, and offered them forgiveness and, 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 and spoken what would happen as a result of the fall of man after the perfect creation he had done, and, and, and man chose to live apart from God. God shows up and says, listen, there is hope. 
this woman, Eve, would bear an offspring thousands of years later. And his, of course, we know his name is Jesus. And so the story of the Bible sort of starts with this broken, what initially was a perfect world that was broken because of man's choice. And God promising that even though this is a huge mess now where sin has come into the world, we're told that, that, that the promise was made by God that God would bring an offspring through Eve that thousands of years later would be the person of Jesus Christ. So now throughout the Old Testament, there is an attempt by Satan who was the picture of the serpent in the garden. Are you guys, you guys are like, glad we came to Memorial Day Church because this is like a lot of Bible for Sunday morning. Just give me a couple of application points and I'm good. No, we don't do that. We want to get into the word of God and get a good spectrum of what this book is about. And so, and so Satan, of course, his whole attempt all through the ages until the coming of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And now, even now, why is Satan after God's people? Because he wants to mar and destroy Jesus Christ. So pre the coming of Christ, that was the story of why so often, like in the book of Esther, we see this crazy attempt at getting rid of the Jewish people because it was through that line that God had promised that the Messiah would come. Isn't this awesome? And so, so now you've got Mordecai who's mourning, like this is all the worst thing that could happen. And what they would do in the Old Testament when they had a problem, mind you, this is something that all of us could learn from. What they would do was that they would actually put on sackcloth. Maybe we shouldn't do that, but they would pray. They would pray. And so even this morning, we gathered to church and heard Carl call us to, to what the vision of this church is and, and to seeing salvation come to the people of Chicago and seeing revival come to the heart of Christians. And he says, what we need is to get on our knees and pray. In fact, last week when I was in Lebanon, I met with a pastor of this church that is doing some awesome work. It would take me a week to tell you all that's happening there. I said, look on our knees. If you want a movement of God in your life, you're going to have to learn to walk on your knees. And so Mordecai gets it, and he's not private about his prayer. He's not like, I'm going to do a little prayer at you know, 5 in the morning, journal a couple of things, make my little list on my iPhone. God, are you going to answer those things? No, no, he takes it so seriously that he puts on sackcloth, which is the sign, the public sign of mourning, and goes to the king's court. You weren't allowed to go into the king's court in sackcloth, so he sat at the gate in sackcloth and prayed. Esther though she hasn't told the king that she is of Jewish descent, knows her uncle who's brought her up and loves him, sees him sitting at the gate and says, dude, what is my crazy uncle doing now? So she sends her servant, and now we're getting to Esther chapter 4, if you're there. She sends message and says, you got to dress up, uncle. You've got to get off the street. What are you doing? You're looking. You're making everybody look bad here. And Mordecai, now Esther didn't know the edict that Haman had sent out to kill the Jewish people. So Mordecai is about to tell her that she's about to face the opportunity of a lifetime. And so Mordecai hears when the servant of Esther comes out and says, dude, you got to get off the streets. Mordecai told him all, verse 7 of Esther 4, all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree. He's like, she might not believe if I just say it. Here's the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Christian, do you see why it's important to understand all that happens in the word of God so that you can in turn be able to make logical decisions about the situations that you're facing and the choices that God has given you when you are given an opportunity of a lifetime? You've got to know. How do you know? You get into the word of God. What do we pray for? 
If we don't know the story, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. Now, even when we're not sure, the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us, but we are given information in this book, which is why so often pastors beg people in church, read the word, be in the word. It's not that there's some to-do list that God is grading, but it's because it's life to us to understand what's happening. And our story is part of this great story of God. And so here's Esther, who so far her parents are dead. Her uncle's a bit on the weird side, but, but with great motives and, and, and doing the work, which she sort of understands, I'm thinking. And, and now she's married to a guy that she might or might not have fallen in love with. We're not so sure. We don't know. And, 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 and in, in some way, you could say, man, she's hit the jackpot. She's living in a, in a palace. We all just watched that wedding a week ago of, of Harry and Meghan. And boy, it was so, whether you agree or not, of the, any of the background of the story, whether you like her or him or not, there was a sort of awe watching this, this pal palatial wedding of this guy who found the love of his life and on and on and on. There's an inspirational thing that happens. And so it's easy to be like, man, dude, what does Esther have to worry about? She's now the queen but there's more coming. And so he sends this message to Esther, and, and Hathak, the guy who was her servant, went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I haven't been called to come into the king these 30 days. One, that the king didn't have needs. It was that the king had many ladies that he could choose from. So you, you see now the insecurity that Esther might be facing because the king hasn't asked for her for 30 days. So even though she's living a dream in the eyes of the world, perhaps, because she went from orphan to queen, she herself might have some insecurities and questions. And, and here's what Mordecai, her uncle, who loves the Lord, says to her. It says, they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young woman will also fast as you do. Basically, Esther's like, we're going to pray. A theme is coming out, I think, today. It, since we showed up in the morning, we believe in prayer because it works. But here's Esther's sort of belief, sort of not so sure if God will answer, which is often where I find myself in prayer. And she answers this after she says, we're going to pray, we're going to fast. And she says, then I'll go to the king, though it is against the law, like Uncle Mordecai, look, what I'm doing is crazy here. And then she says, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. We're talking about sacrifice, the opportunity of a lifetime. And I'm going to give you four application points here as we wrap things up. Number one, our greatest opportunities will usually come in the form of our greatest obstacles. Most of the things that we get to do in life that are awesome are born out of trouble. 
Many of you have a story to that effect. We heard this morning in prayer time, the young man who says all that God is doing in his life. How did he come to a place of healing? Well, he told us how he used to be an addict to heroin. That was in the pre-service prayer meeting. If any of you are like, man, you guys had service before service? Sort of, yeah. So you guys can show up at 8 and there's stuff happening in this place. And so I walked in a little bit late as my usual, but caught that part of the story. And, and it was so exciting to hear that out of this obstacle in your life, I'm, I'm hitting a wall now. I'm not sure what I need to do. And God sends you a rescue plan. And he says, I'm going to take it. I myself can look at time and time in my life where I've been given obstacles. My very work in Lebanon that I'm so enmeshed in now started out of a time when I left an old church that I was part of and thought, God, my ministry days are done. It didn't occur to me that God could create a new opportunity in my life because I just, to me, to my world, to my eyes, the door looked so shut. It was in that season that a friend of mine urged me, I speak Arabic because I grew up in Lebanon, came to the United States when I was 15, and my family immigrated to Green Bay, Wisconsin, hence our love for the Packers. And, 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 and many of you said, repent! <laughs> and and I, 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 just, I just thought, that, you know, I, I remember thinking, Lord, I'm never going to go back to the Middle East when we moved. And yet, and yet here we showed up, and, and I was hitting a wall and on my knees and asking God, what do you want me to do now? The worst obstacle that I was facing in my life for a woman who wanted to be in a ministry service. And, and, and now I was part of, not even part of a church, and my identity was rooted in that. And all of a sudden, this friend of mine said, why don't you do a podcast in Arabic? She meant one. I did a year's worth. I didn't read, the, I hadn't read Arabic since I left school back when I was in the 10th grade. It is not an easy language to read. I'd never, I grew up in an American church. I'd never prayed in Arabic. I'd never taught the Bible in Arabic. I'd never read a verse in Arabic. My faith language has always been English. But the challenge made sense to me. And I thought there's Muslim people in Chicago that might need an Arabic podcast. There apparently were about 30 of them. Unless it was my mom listening over and over again. I don't think she did. <laughs> And, 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 and I remember at the end of that year, I went on a vision trip to the Middle East, and, and, and I'm telling you, I had no plan. That is what a vision trip is. It is, I have no idea what I'm doing, and you get a ticket somewhere with a group of people, and you call it a vision trip. We went to Jordan. It was 2000, 2012 when the refugee crisis was just starting, and, and sort of people were starting to talk about it, and I kind of could add the dots. I want to do ministry. I'm Arabic speaking. You know, there's people who are in need. And I went to Jordan, and I was like, this place is not for me. A month later, I had booked a ticket to go to visit my uncle in Lebanon, and, and it was sort of, again, another vision trip. And I went on my own this time, and I kept asking God, like, what? If I can't serve in the U.S., there must be something else you want me to do. And little did I know that at the time, God was setting up a story where I'd do both. I went to meet with the head of a seminary, thinking I'd teach the Bible in Arabic there, because I did a one-year podcast in Arabic. And, and I could tell he wasn't interested. And two minutes into the meeting, I thought, why am I wasting his time and he mine? So on a... On a, on a on a limb, I said to him, man, do you know any publishers here? And he says, he looked behind his window. He says, see that door down there? That's the biggest publisher house of Christian books in Lebanon and reaches all areas of the Middle East. I said, those two books I brought to give you to see what my ministry is about. I had written two books by then. I said, I'm not going to give them to you. I'm going to take them down there. I walked down there, and I ended up at that point, again, obstacle to opportunity, I, I went down there, gave those books to the lady who would become my publisher. We got both books published in Arabic, and it was out of the conference that we planned the year later to talk about the books that I went out and met the pastor who does the work for the refugees. That was two and a half years ago. We've done six medical mission trips. 
Now we have an Adopt-A-Family program where we support families who, are, um, who, who, who have converted from Islam to Christianity and are being persecuted for their faith and are being discipled. We've got 15 families we're supporting every month. We've got a Feed the Sheep program, we called it, where we're feeding 40 families a month. How? Because one day I faced the obstacle where I thought my life ended ministry-wise after leaving the church and God saying, man, this is just the beginning. If you can't see in the story of Esther how she's about to face the greatest obstacle of her life, her whole people are going to be killed. Mordecai sees it. He's wearing sackcloth. Esther is sitting going, man, what am I going to do about it? And, and, and she's asked to take the opportunity of a lifetime. And of course, those of you who know the book of Esther know that the story ends well. There's a country called Israel. 2,000 miles from here, which proves that the Jewish people were not destroyed. So we know, even if you don't read the Bible, that the story ends well for the Jewish people. But it hinged on a woman who was given an opportunity of a lifetime that looked like the greatest obstacle that they could face at that point. Are you making applications in your life? Are you thinking about the marriages that you're facing that are challenging? Maybe you single people are, are looking at your lives going, man, I can't do the single life. Look, look, it is not easy, but you might be given the opportunity of a lifetime to do what God has created you to do. Obstacles are our invitation to step out in faith. They're an invitation to show who we really are. Do we really believe God? Do we really believe the story of salvation? I mean, do you, do you really believe that there is a God who sent his son Jesus to die for your sins, who can do anything, who can raise the dead? He raised himself from the dead. He can bring victory into your life. You just spent some time reading Romans 8 to see all of the awesome things God can do. Do you believe that for everybody else except your life? Or do you believe that that same God is faithful in your life to turn your obstacles into the greatest opportunities of your life? This is awesome. You say, well... What else do I need to know about this? Well, our greatest opportunities come in the form of obstacles, but then this, our greatest opportunities are never accidental or haphazard. There is no like, oh my gosh, it is an accident. Like, of all the women in the world who could have been picked to be the wife of the king, of all the guys in the world who could have been the uncle of Esther, oh, this is so amazing. We've got a Christian there. We've got a person... It's not like that. You see, there's a God in the universe who knows everything. Every thought you're having right now, you read Psalm 139, every thought that you haven't had yet, tonight you'll have to decide, brat or burger. God knows your answer already, both. <laughs> Think about it for a minute. We serve an awesome God. He knows what the future of 180 Chicago is. He knows whether you're going to go actually to the 180 church invitation meeting that we have where we tell you about our church and whether you're going to be faithful to show up week after week. He knows if we'll be meeting here in a week, in a year, in a, in a decade. He knows these things and he's put you and me here right now for a reason. Maybe you're like, well, not me, man. I'm just driving through Chicago. You're wrong. Maybe God is stirring your heart to help support this church. Maybe you know people in Chicago who need a local church. Do you see that God never works haphazardly? There's always intention to everything he does. One of the gifts of being in the Middle East is to be able to see this up close and personal. The, this last trip I took was my best trip. And the reason it was is because I, 
I've vested, I've, I've been there six times. And so they know now I'm serious about them. I'm not just there to get a couple Instagram pictures to show the world that we're doing work. I love the people. I love what's happening there. They're like family to me. They're, they're, our local, they're, they're part of the big church. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ. If you understood the dynamic of Lebanon versus Syria, you would appreciate the, the crazy nature of it all, politically speaking. Well, the main guy who heads up discipleship, his, his name is Nazih, and he is a crazy guy. Everything that I'm doing right now is birthed out of a text that I get from him that says, Hey, Lena, I've got a great idea. Beware of people who text you at random times of the day or night and says, Hey, dude, I got a great idea for you. My problem is I'm easy to bait, and I'm like, hit me. I didn't find out till recently that I'm the only person who says yes to him. Everybody's like, nope, no, no. If you didn't see him coming, there, run. Because he always has ideas of these crazy projects that he wants to do. But, but I, I, one of the crazy ideas he had as I was going to Lebanon this last time, he says, let's go into Syria. And, and dude, he told me that two days before the chemical attack in Syria. So two days later, I text him and I was like, dude, we're changing, right? We're not going. He goes, no, this is a completely different area. Syria's big. <laughs> I didn't tell my mom. <laughs> I flew back to Lebanon two days before, and I thought, well, let God be God. We'll see what happens. And, and my mom would have been said, God gave you a brain. Don't do that. But I said, I'm going to go. And, and I got into the cab with Nazih, and we had a, a couple of cab rides and then a bus ride. And, and, and all along the way, I noticed something. Nazih would get in the car, and time after time, within 10 seconds of putting his butt on the seat, he would look at the driver and say, dude, I don't believe in accidents. God put me in this cab for a reason. Do you know if you died right now where you'd go, this is in Lebanon, 75% Muslim population, unheeding, you go, can you share the gospel with people at work? Try it, see what happens. What stunned me is the receptivity of every person who was asked the question. No one said to him, dude, shut up. No one, no one. Everyone wanted to talk about what would happen to them after they died. Everyone. We ended up not being able to go into Syria. The, my papers, the Lebanese papers that I had from way back when I was eight expired, surprisingly, and so we couldn't go in. So my mom's prayers were answered. And, and, and in the meantime, we got dropped off at the borders. And it's hilarious because here we are at the border and the driver who dropped us off is like, I'm heading home. I got another hour and a half into Syria. Y'all are on your own. And I looked at Nazi and he looked at me and I said, Nazi, what are we going to do now? He goes, we pray that God will provide a ride back to Beirut. So we're walking with his suitcase and my backpack. We're walking across the border back into Lebanon. We get let in, and I'm thinking, I am living in the twilight zone here. But he was praying. We look up, and we see a bus sitting right there. We got into the bus. The guy, we went up to him. Nazi, actually, see, when I see a bus at the border of Lebanon and Syria where I don't have a ride back, I come to the bus, and I think, this is from the Lord. Take it and go. Nazi comes up to the driver and says, how much are you charging? The guy gave us like a third of what we had paid up, and he wanted to negotiate. I said, Nazi, shut up. We're taking the ride. I had to pay 10 times the amount. I didn't have any other way out. We get into the car, and we start driving, and again, 10 seconds into the conversation, the guy gets asked, do you know what will happen to you when you die? It is not an accident that we went from Beirut to the borders to get turned around, to come back, to pray for a ride. And the guy, and I'm thinking, like, okay, this is like the seventh time I've heard this spiel today. The guy driving was quiet for about five seconds, and then he says, I'm going to tell you something. The guy was about 25. He said, I've been married three times. The woman I'm with right now, I hate. 
He goes, I come out here, it cost me 15,000 liras, which is about $7 to rent the bus all day. He goes, I sat at the border and drove around all day long. I haven't even made enough money to cover the cost of this bus. I have not taken one ride. He goes, all the last hour I said, I'm going to go home, but I hate being home. And I thought I'm just going to stay at the border. Maybe I'll try one more run. That was our ride. We ended up talking about Jesus the whole way. We picked up another friend on the way. And two days later, I see Nazi had the church. And he says, that guy, Bilal, he's texting me daily talking about Jesus and the faith. Pray for him. He's disclosed to the kingdom of God. This is a person from a strict Muslim background. These stories are a dime a dozen in Lebanon right now. God is moving because Pastor Jihad tells you he's learned to walk on his knees. But what the point is as it pertains to Esther is that it was not an accident that Esther was born looking the way that she did. That, that her parents had died and Mordecai had brought her up. That they lived in that town, in that space. That she was the one of all the women chosen to be the queen. And that she had hid her identity so that at the right time, God didn't ask her to tell them that she was Jewish the year before. It wouldn't have mattered. It was at that time, that place. That was when God had her there. And so I ask you, have you considered that where you are right now, whether you love it or hate it, could be the very place that God has placed you? To save a man, a woman, or an entire nation for Christ. Our greatest opportunities will come in the form of our greatest obstacles. Our greatest opportunities are never accidental or haphazard. And then this, our greatest opportunities will demand an unthinkable sacrifice. It ain't easy to show up to the king when he hasn't called you for 30 days to to put yourself on the line, and, and, and it's not just that it's difficult. She's aware that it's difficult. Everybody around her is aware that it's difficult. They're all a little bit scared. Esther goes as far as saying, dude, if I perish, I perish. I might die in this operation. I might get fired. I might get hated. I might get spit upon. And, and yet she understands that a sacrifice is a sacrifice because it costs us something. I was about 16 when I went to camp and God stirred in my heart to dedicate my life to him, to give him my life. I was a Christian before, but I was young. I don't know that I understood the full capacity of what it means to be a Christian. But at 16, we were taught that God has a plan for our life. It's all over scripture. And I remember the verses that we were given to memorize. And I, to this day, I know them. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you. Paul is writing. Paul, who had spent his life killing Christians and then met Jesus Christ with such force that everything about his life changed. And Paul writes, I beseech you to the Roman church, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, who is your reasonable service. And he goes on to say, not to be conformed to the, to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I guarantee you that if you're not spending time in God's word, and if you're not spending time around God's people, and if you're not spending time thinking about God and talking to God and, and, and meditating on the word and, and, and putting it into your souls, then I guarantee you that you are not going to be able to be transformed and, and non-conformed to the world. If when you first wake up, you can't sacrifice 30 minutes of your time to get on your knees and pray and be in God's word, and you're automatically on Twitter and Facebook because that's what we do in the morning. It's become part of our habitat then no wonder you don't feel fervor in your heart for Jesus. 
If the last time you served anyone out of your natural zone of work it was, was back when you were 13 and you took a field trip to the homeless shelter, no wonder you don't have a heart for the needy. If you don't have anyone in your life that you're sharing Christ with that is hopeless, that is in a place where you look at their life and you go, dude, I, I can't even imagine a world where, where their life would change because they're so hopeless. If those people are not a regular part of your life, and by the way, when I say those people, we were those people. That's what Paul spent his life saying. He goes, I am a sinner. He, he, he would repeat it over and over again. But for the grace of God, have you forgotten where you were saved from? But it will demand unthinkable sacrifice over and over in this world. My favorite example is probably Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three young men who were put into the fiery furnace. And they said to the king, even if our God doesn't deliver us, we will still do this. We will worship our Lord. And he did deliver them. He had delivered them. And he continues to deliver us because of Jesus. In fact, that's my final point. Our greatest opportunities are made possible because of unparalleled sacrifice. You see, as hard as it is to look at your life, and by the way, there is no human power that would allow us to step out of our comfort zone and do those things outside of knowing that that sacrifice, that unparalleled, awesome sacrifice has already been made on our behalf. And so for us to just stupidly offer our life as a sacrifice is just not intelligent unless we know that someone has already purchased our lives and our lives are not our own. Do you understand that Jesus did that for us? He was a king. He is a king. God became man in Philippians 2. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. He was born not in a palace but in a manger. He exemplified the life that was living that with the least of these. He constantly preached the gospel and says, the least of these will become the greatest. I, give up yourself. Give up your rights. Do, and he wouldn't just preach it. He lived it. So that by the time he walked down Golgotha onto the cross, he had embodied what a life of sacrifice should look like. And then the ultimate sacrifice, he gave his body on the cross for us. So that we would be able to face situations where our lives, are, our very lives are threatened. And by the way, most of us, that's not the point of tension. It's not that our lives are threatened that makes us crazy. It's that our comforts are threatened. It's that our schedules are threatened. It is that our interests are threatened and our desires and our, we are brought up with a world where we're told dream, dream, dream. And, and we forget that, yes, dream, but dream God-sized dreams for your life. If your dreams are void of God, then they're not godly dreams. And God wants more for your life so that back in September when I finally decide to leave the ER to do telemedicine and serve the Lord and people come to me and say, Lena, do you regret it? And I look at him and say, not for a second. It's not because I'm so great. It's not because there's something so awesome in my life. It's because I've tasted a life that is so far better and I've met a Savior that is so far better than anything or anyone that we can imagine on this earth. We've been fed a lie, singles, that if we would just meet the one, our lives would be complete. Hey, look, look, if you're married here today, look at the person on your right and say, you complete me. You can enjoy that relationship in its fullness, but it is short of the awesome unity that you have with God the Father married also. And every married people in this room will come up to you as singles. I guarantee you, because I've heard this over and over again, and I'm well in my 40s now, and they'll tell you, man, I love my spouse. Carl, you would say the same thing about Junan. I love her, but outside of Jesus, this relationship does not complete me. 
You look at people who have had it all. Houses, planes, vacations. And there's an ache and a, and a, and a missing element in their life because it is all about me, me, me. And yet I go to the Middle East and I sit in a tent with people whose house is smaller than my bathroom. And they've got joy radiating in their face. I was telling Junan and Jenny a story that I put on Instagram. and Such a symbolic thing that I think I'll end with. Family we visited, we pulled up to the building. The building was super sort of nice. It was about 20 minutes from the church. This was one of the families that we've chosen to adopt. And, and, and by the way, Lily, if we're moving into the singing, this would be a good time to come and start vamping and and, 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 and I, went, I told Nazih again, Nazih, this is the discipleship pastor. I said to Nazih, dude, these people, man, I, if they live in this building, I'm a little embarrassed. He goes, no, wait till you see. We didn't go up to the building. We walked around the corner to a hut, to call it a hut. I have a picture of it on, on the Instagram. You can go on there and scroll down, and you'll figure out which one it is. There's a little, two little kids. A baby's looking up at me in one of the pictures. Mom is holding the baby. And this is a family who used to be Muslim and who's given their life to Jesus. And they, they, the reason they live 20 minutes away from church, which is not convenient in any way, but because they were given that little hole to live in. And I got to know them. I got to hear their story. And, and I'm sitting there kind of thinking, like, man, this place. Like, and I'm thinking, on one hand, there's trees outside, which is better than the city. And so I asked the woman about the experience. I go, how does it feel for you? Because it is so scary to be here. She goes, in the middle of the night, people will come up and see the tent from the outside and they'll throw stones at our door. I have to wake my husband up and hold the kids. We're so nervous. There's no one around them. That is not the way that they're used to living there. And, and they're in desperate need. They have to pay a thousand liras to get on a bus each person. They have nothing. They have to pay the money in order to go down to the church. They do that two or three times a week to be in Bible study. And so we have adopted them and, and we offer them these $200 a month as need arises. And, and, and Nazih, as we sat and heard their story, and my purpose there was just to bring back the stories to the people who are supporting these families. And, 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 and all I could hear about was how awesome life in Jesus was and how much they wanted the word. And the woman doesn't read and she's going to sign up in a Bible study that teaches her to read. And she's begging us for that little thing that does the Bible and sound so that she could be in the word. And and, and then Nazi says to me, ask them about uh, the last gift that they got. They, call, they, they set up as a gift so that they don't become reliant on the church. And so they sort of look for opportunities to give it. And they felt the church felt such desperate need with this family that they called them up when they says, we have this gift for you, the $200. And the guy literally takes that money from one hand. His family, who had heard he was Christian, did not like that idea. So there was some abuse going on in the family and his parents were up in Syria sort of checking out how this Christian faith looks like. This one-year-old Christian faith barely. So this man with his wife and two kids who's trying to make it gets the $200 and that same week he finds out that his dad is sick in Syria and needs some kind of medical procedure and so he takes all of it, not a percent of it, all of it from one hand and ships it to the dad in Syria so that he could be healed. So the dad is doing fine now. They still live in this hut. They're waiting on the Lord for where they'll eat and how they'll live. And I remember looking around me in the room and thought, man, this is what sacrifice looks like. You see, whether you're a Syrian refugee or an American living in the Gold Coast, we are all given the opportunity of a lifetime in small ways and sometimes in big ways. You're going to step up to the plate today. God's going to send somebody your way. You're going to get an email. You're going to walk into a restaurant. And you're either going to be so caught up with me, me, me. 
You're going to be so fear-filled. You're going to be so, and, and sometimes legitimately so. Esther's fear was legit. And yet it was not long after that as she and Mordecai and the people of Israel had walked to God on their knees and says, God, we need you to save us. And God wasn't just caring about them in that place. By the way, Haman would end up dying. And the Jewish people survived. But thousands of years later, Jesus would come and Jesus would intercede on our behalf better than Esther did because Haman, who died in Esther chapter 6 or 7, would today be given the opportunity to be saved because of Jesus. You see, Jesus is a far better sacrifice than Esther. So fix your eyes on Jesus, my friend. Get on your knees pray ask god for the opportunity of a lifetime to sacrifice your life listen it is not our life christ lives in us in galatians paul my favorite new testament author says it i have been crucified with christ nevertheless i live yet not i but christ lives in me so that tv show would christ watch it it's not legalism, that's real faith. That dollar that we're spending, we all know we've made mistakes, we've spent on things we shouldn't. I just purchased something recently and I thought, God, I didn't check with you. That was stupid. And look, God doesn't beat us on the head, he loves us. But he knows that there's more to the Christian life than just living the American dream. Guys, we've been given such a privilege and an opportunity to live a life that is bigger, the thrilling life that Carl has written a book on. I want to be part of that life. I am, by God's grace, living that life. I pray with all my heart that you are too. And so God, in this moment, we bow our heads to you. God, we love you. And we love you because you first loved us. Father, I really believe that we haven't begun to scratch the meaning of that. Even for those of us who have claimed to know you for some time, Father, there is a, so often a disconnect between those desires in our souls that we think will make us happy and you. So God, I ask today that your spirit would convict us and change us. Spirit of God, I ask that you would do a lasting work in this room, Father, not just a feel-good hour after the service, I'm going to find a homeless, give him a dollar. Not that, God, but, but change, radical change. God, we long for a movement of the Spirit reviving us. And we thank you that even in this moment, you're at work in our life.